As you're being seated, if you would please take out your copies of God's Word with me this morning and turn to Exodus chapter 20. Exodus chapter 20. We have been going through a series on the Ten Commandments here on Sunday morning, and we are on commandment number two, which you will see is listed for you in Exodus chapter 20, verses 4 through 6. Verses 4 through 6. Listen carefully, because this is God's word to you. You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them. For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God for his word. Let's go to God one last time and ask his blessing on our text today. Our Lord in heaven, I do ask that you would be with us as we hear from your word. I pray that you would open our minds to understand and our hearts to believe and obey. We ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. One of the hardest things to navigate in relationships is to know how to, well, relate to other people, to know what it is that they like, what they don't. This is one of the challenging aspects of life when I was courting my wife uh, at that time. I was very interested in finding out what it was that she wanted and what she didn't. And I, this being my first date ever, I had tried to script our conversation because I thought perhaps I could have some measure of comfort with where it has, and I actually have the picture of an outline that I had drawn on my whiteboard of how I thought the conversation might go. I was operating in darkness, (laughs) and I had no clue what I was doing. I would like to say I've gotten better since then, but I guess you'll have to ask her to confirm. But you could imagine how of the relationship that was on the line in those first early days was certainly something quite important to me. But imagine if I had no guiding whatsoever as to what my relationship with God was to look like, what it is that God wanted in terms of worship. Is it that we just have to figure this out on our own and then we'll find out when we get to heaven whether or not God was happy with what we did? Or perhaps maybe there's something more. And I think that's what one of the points of what we're going to see here in the Scripture is pointing to, is that God has not left us in the dark about how to approach Him. He has not left us in, in the dark about how we are supposed to worship. We don't need to figure this out or innovate this for ourselves. We simply need to read the Scriptures and find out what He is looking for. I remember hearing a pastor of a very Reformed church saying, we have seeker-sensitive worship around here. And his point was, there is only one seeker of worship, and it is God. We need to make sure that our worship is conformed to his desires and wants. And that's what we're going to look at for at least one aspect here today about his worship. We're going to be looking at two points today as we look into this commandment. The first point is that God frees us from guessing about how to worship him. 
God frees us from guessing how to worship him. And then the second point is that God zealously honors his love. That's where we're going to be looking at today. So let's jump into this first commandment and we find out what it is that he is looking for. Here in this first part of verse 4, he says, You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. That's rather comprehensive, isn't it? It's pretty clear God does not want us to make an image to bow down and serve. This isn't something that we see a whole lot in Western culture. This is something that still happens, of course, in other parts of the world of building some sort of image to, to, to worship that's supposed to represent a god. So this is, and this has been something that has existed through, well, as long as humans have been around, wanting to carve something to bow down to and to serve. So God here is being rather radical, rather controversial, rather different than how worship was done in the rest of the ancient world. God says you will not worship with any visible image. Now, God is not opposing art in itself. In fact, we can see in other passages of Scripture, like, for example, in Exodus 31, here in the same book, 11 or so chapters later, in Exodus 31, you can turn there if you'd like, follow along with me. In verses 1 through 5, we see that God is commissioning people to work and design things. Look at verse 4. He has given people to devise artistic designs, to work in gold, silver, and bronze, in cutting stones for setting, and in carving wood, to work in every craft. This was meant to be things that would be placed into the tabernacle. And then later on in 1 Kings chapter 6, verses 23 through 30, we see that there have been designs that were carved into the temple that God was to be worshipped in. Trees and pomegranates and even the carving of two cherubim that were to be sitting on opposite sides of the mercy seat. So God is not opposed to art in and of itself. We are still allowed to carve things. So what is he getting at here? Well, he is opposing using these carved things to worship them, to bow down towards these things. And this is in conjunction with the first commandment, that there will be no other gods before him and not to make any likenesses of anyone either. But it's interesting, though, that this here command is not just saying, well, don't worship other gods with images, but he's also clear that we're not supposed to worship him by using some sort of visual representation. In fact, this was what the uh, people did in the um, golden calf incident when Moses went up to the mountain to receive the commandments of God, and Aaron and the rest of the gang carved together this gold calf. And Aaron says at that point, that he says, tomorrow we're going to have a feast to the Lord. And that this calf that they were supposed to worship was supposed to represent God himself. This is trying to blend how they wanted to do worship, clearly in counter to what God wanted for worship. And God makes his feelings quite well known about that and saying that these people have been rebellious in doing so. In fact, uh, in, a, in another place in Deuteronomy chapter 4, we'll see that Moses addresses this specifically in Deuteronomy 4, starting in verse 15. 
Moses says, therefore, watch yourselves very carefully. Since you saw no form on the day that the Lord spoke to you at Horeb out of the midst of fire, beware lest you act corruptly by making a carved image for yourself in the form of any figure, the likeness of male or female, the likeness of any animal that is on the earth, a winged bird that flies in the air. And he goes on from there, further enumerating all the things that we're not supposed to use. And one of the reasons that he uses there is because God had no form. So in order so to create any sort of idol is automatically wrong. God is a spirit. He doesn't have a form. You say, well, what about the other passages in the scriptures where it talks about the arm of the Lord or the eyes of the Lord? It's speaking metaphorically. God does not have hands and is limited by that. He doesn't have a body. But he, has, but he is a spirit. So this is what he is mentioning here. And this even continues in, in, into the New Testament when, uh, P, when uh, Paul confronts the people of Athens and sees idols everywhere. This is an improper way of worshiping. And he mentions that in Acts 17, 29. So what do we draw from all of this? Well, what we draw from this is that God wants to be worshiped in a particular way. This is not something that we get to innovate our, our way towards. In other words, contrary to our society's motto, don't follow your heart. Because as it says in Jeremiah 17, 9, your heart is desperately wicked. Who could even comprehend how wicked it is? It says in Jeremiah that we're not to follow our own imaginations about these things. Instead, what we are called to is, like, well, and that's one of the distinctives of in our in our church, in, in the Presbyterian church at large, is that we looked and say, we're only going to worship in the ways that we see brought out in the scriptures. And anything else, if God hasn't commanded it, we're not going to do it. Because he's listed out what he wants us to do. And we see those commands for prayers and praise. We see commands to preach, to baptize, and to take of the Lord's Supper, supporting the church and its work. All of those things we're able to pull directly out of the scriptures. Anything else is going to be some sort of an innovation. So we can see clearly that this is that when we want to worship God, we don't set up statues. We don't come up with something in our minds for to visualize what God looks like, because that's going to be something that is going to be of necessity wrong. But what about something like pictures of Jesus? Is there something different with Jesus? He has come in physical form, after all. What are we supposed to do with that? Well, I'm going to make you wait till the end of the sermon. So I want you to pay attention to our second point. So our second point is which, uh, where God spends a lot more time here in verses 5 and 6, enumerating more things about himself. And there are some questions that I think that are worth untangling here, and then we can come back to more of the image questions. And that's where we're going to get to our second point, is that God zealously honors his love. Sometimes we can be confused here when we look at verse 5. Here he's giving the reasons for why we shouldn't be bowing down to idols or to other gods. He says, you shall not bow down to them or serve them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God. Now, jealous in our understanding of this word today only has negative connotations. 
We tend to look at jealousy as more, if we're going to be precise, we look at jealousy more like enviousness. It's like, well, I'm jealous that my neighbor got a new car. It's like, well, it's more accurate to say I'm envious that my neighbor has a new car because I want that new car. The term here, jealous, is a, 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 the, that's translated jealous in our own mind would probably be better translated zealous with a Z. In fact, the same word that's used here for jealous is the same word that we see in Psalm 69.9, where it says that the zeal for God's house has consumed me. In other words, what, is, what he we're trying to convey here is that there is a passionate protection of love. If we wanted to put an image to this, there are, and, and it, it wouldn't be far at all to say, is that there, are, there is a marital overtone here. In the same way that a husband, a good husband, would be jealous of someone else trying to encroach on the relationship with his wife, and he would defend his wife from this interloper that's trying to come in, this is the same concept that we have here, is God's love means something. God is not indifferent if you're saying, it's like, well, you know, maybe I'll go over here and flirt with this God. No. God is zealous for his worship. God is zealous for his people and does not take this lying down. This is a strong word that he's using here. If God doesn't care, then God really doesn't love. This also gives On the flip side, when we see how God reacts to this, it gives us a taste of what it is that we're doing when we want to worship something else. It's spiritual adultery when we talk about idolatry. When we're pursuing and giving our love to something else, this is not just a breach of worship. This is a breach of relationship committing spiritual adultery. And that's something that that God does not hesitate to use in those terms. And we see in the rest of the Old Testament, when the Israelites would wander away from God, he would talk about whoring with these other gods, prostituting oneself. It's a really clear picture because it's saying no one loves the prostitute. Those other gods, these other things don't have a relationship with you. But the Lord, our spiritual husband, to put it in that way, loves and cares for us. So any wandering of our heart away from something like that is something that God despises and is zealous for. This isn't because God is emotionally needy. This isn't because God needs our affection but it's because God is perfectly holy. He is the only one in the universe worthy of worship. So for him to defend that worship is right. Not because he needs something, because he loves us, wants to have us share and, and behold his glory. He defends that. But now what about as we go on from here? So if we say, okay, well, we know we shouldn't commit idolatry or spiritual adultery because the Lord is jealous or zealous for us. What about what we see here in the rest of it? That God is a a jealous or zealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children of the the third and fourth generation of those who hate me. What is he saying here? 
is God punishing children for the sins that their fathers commit. Seems rather unfair at first glance, but is that what he's saying? And the answer is no. If you'll turn with me in your Bibles to Ezekiel, Ezekiel chapter 18. In Ezekiel chapter 18, scrolling down to verse 20, it says, The soul who sins shall die. The son shall not suffer for the iniquity of the father, nor the father suffer for the iniquity of the son. The righteousness of the righteous shall be upon himself, and the wickedness of the wicked shall be upon himself. Okay. So how are we supposed to reconcile these two passages? It looks like, on the one hand, in Exodus, it's saying, if you commit sin, if you commit spiritual adultery, I'm going to punish your children, your grandchildren, your great-grandchildren for it. But over here in Ezekiel, it seems to say, no, everyone's going to be responsible for their own sin. How do we reconcile this? Well, one of the things that we assume when we're coming into this passage is that the third and fourth generations are not guilty of the same sin of the fathers. But that's not what this is saying here. This is the third and fourth generation of those who hate me. In other words, these third and fourth generations are committing the same sins that their fathers and grandfathers were committing. Now, this is not necessarily a promise that if you sin, that your children will absolutely sin in the same way. That's not the case. But it does tend to be the environments that we create for our families, when our children see us sinning in those particular ways, we're giving them a model. And oftentimes they'll continue to sin in the same ways that we do. This gives us a sense of importance for our own sin. Your sin is not private. Your sin doesn't just affect you. Your sin affects others. Now, in further generations, if generations repent for those sins, well, then wonderful. That's what we see here in the, in the later part, that he shows steadfast love to thousands. And some, some translations say thousands of generations of those who love me and keep my commandments. The Lord is very merciful and will always hear repentance. But if we sin and pass this on to the rest of our generations, no one is going to escape. Iniquity will be pursued. Kevin DeYoung had a wonderful illustration about for, for us providing on to the next generation is to provide a downhill slide towards righteousness. When we make the worship of God a priority, when we live the way that we say we should, this creates this environment for the children to where it's, it creates more of a process to sin against it. I was raised in a wonderful home. I saw my parents living out what they said that they believed. Were they perfect? Obviously not. No one is. But they gave me that downhill slide towards righteousness. If I wanted to go and mess up my life, it would take a bit of effort to do because they had, they had so surrounded me with the word and with their own godly example. And I think that's what we should strive for here is what this commandment is showing to us is our sin and our righteousness has an effect on others. Again, this is not a 
promise or or a math equation. You do X, you'll always get Y. Sometimes, and I've seen this happen, where families will do for as much as the grace of God has, has allowed, will do things as perfectly as they can. But then the next generation simply won't take it. Because remember, Christianity is not a math problem. The Holy Spirit is the one who transforms the heart. And we don't get to manipulate the Holy Spirit by saying, it's like, well, I did devotion times every night, therefore you owe me this. No. God does not owe us perfect children. And in fact, most of the time, the the Lord will, will be merciful in our parenting. It's all of mercy and grace. So these aren't ironclad promises, but they are general principles. And that the things that we do affect the next generation. And the blessings that we have can be passed on to the next one, as well as the unrighteousness and sin. It's worth being mindful of, of constantly pointing the next generation to Christ. That's what I think this commandment is entreating to us to do, is that the worship of God is important. Obedience to God is crucial because it's not just your life. It's also those that are around you that will look and will see. So I think all this is very clear. So now the question is, it's like, well, what do we do about images that are not used for worship? Obviously, we know we don't want to create a little statue of Jesus and sit him on top of the pulpit and bow down to it. We know that's wrong. But what about things like illustrated children's Bibles? Or what about television shows like The Chosen or numerous other movies, The Passion of the Christ? What are we supposed to do with those things? I think it's not as... It is, there can be a little bit of a debate with this. And as I was looking through commentaries, I could find perspectives from all over the place as to how to look at this. But what I think, at least in my mind, what I am convinced now, this has been a bit of a journey for me, as my wife can attest, of back and forth for me. But what we look at when we see Jesus, Jesus does have a body. Jesus is the Son of God. He had human flesh and still has to this day arms and legs. And in and, and insofar as that can be portrayed, I think that I don't think it's a sin to have a children's Bible. However, I would say be enormously careful with images of Christ. Enormously careful with things like the chosen. The reason why is because any when we as we read in Colossians, so the earlier portion of our New Testament readings, why I chose this, is Jesus, yes, he has a human nature, but he's not just human either. And when we spend all of our time focusing on the human form of Christ, we can begin to forget that there's actually, he is also fully divine. And that's not something that we are able to convey in an artist's portrait or with a television camera. So we are of of necessity only getting one side of things when we're looking at that. We also remember that the fullness of God dwells inside of Christ and that he was the perfect representation of the Father, such that he could say, if you have seen me, you have seen the Father, which means every tone of voice, every facial expression, every bit of demeanor is perfectly what God would have us to ordain. And there is no way any actor can do that. 
We're not able to crawl into the mind of God and understand exactly how Jesus would be portrayed in these things. So when we watch things like The Passion, when we watch things like The Chosen, we are recognizing this actor is getting it wrong. (laughs) So please, if these are going to be things that you're going to consume, don't get your ideas about Jesus from a movie or from a TV show. The scriptures is where we find all that we need to know for faith and practice and the word himself, Jesus. There's a reason why he came, as R.C. Sproul Jr. once said, that he is the word, not the video. He has revealed himself in this way. Now, again, I don't think it's a sin if you have a children's Bible at home. I have, I have a couple of them at home for, for my children. But I think it is worth explaining as we look at this is to say, yes, this is how this artist is portraying Jesus. But we don't know what he looks like. In fact, we don't have any descriptions of what Jesus looks like in the scriptures. Because ultimately what Jesus looks like is not the important thing. That's not how he intends to reveal himself, not through a painting or through a video or anything. Instead, the image that God has left for us is in you. We have been made in the image of God, not to say that we look like God, but to say that we're supposed to display what God is like. So instead of spending our time trying to craft what we think would be an accurate visual portrait of Jesus, are you becoming an accurate representation of the life that Christ wants you to live? Are you Jesus to the rest of the world? Are you able to display these attributes of love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, and self-control? That's what I think our focus should be on. The image of Christ that should be displayed should be displayed functionally through our lives. And I think that's the thing that we are to look to. I think another thing that we can remember if we are looking for the visuals that God has given to us is actually here in the Lord's Supper and in baptism. We don't worship the bread and the fruit of the vine, no. We don't bow down to these things, but this is our visual picture of what Christ has done for us. When we break the bread, we're reminded of how Christ's body has been broken for us. When we pour out the fruit of the vine, we are reminded of how Christ's blood has been poured out for us in, in total, that his whole life has been given for us. This is, if we need a visual aid, this is what we have been given. So instead of trying to nail down what Jesus looks like, We can look into his word, and there's where we will find what we need. We can look to those things that God has given to us, and there and only there will we find what the Lord wants us to see. So what's our takeaway from all of this? Well, our takeaway from here is that God zealously protects his worship and his people's affection for him. So if us trying to wander away from God's love has catastrophic effects for both us and for those that are around us. We don't want to lead people into sin. We want to lead people continually back to Jesus. So it's important. We don't try to form visual images of God because he doesn't want to be worshiped in that way. But instead, we are to live out the way that he has called for us to do. And may I say, just as by way of addition for application, 
The way for most of us that we would break this commandment is not usually through making of images, but it's through having a, having a God in our minds that's contrary to what we see in Scripture. How often have we heard, well, my God is not like that. It's like, you're exactly right, because your God doesn't exist. <laughs> if it's not what we see here in, in the Scripture, it's like, well, I don't believe that God really wants to govern what two consenting adults are doing in the privacy of their own home. Like, no, that's not what we see here in the Scriptures. God demands obedience for the entirety of our lives. And for us to say, it's like, well, I don't think God really cares about this area. That's making a false God in our minds. Or if we say that God cares about something that he's not put in his word. Try to make God into some sort of political crowbar in order to get what you want done. We don't get to do that either. Or we don't get to minimize some elements of, of him at the exclusion of others. A lot of times in our American churches, we really want to emphasize God's love. That's a wonderful thing. But we also have to reckon with God's justice. God brings people to heaven and he sends people to hell. These are things we both have to keep in mind. God is a wonderful, merciful God who hates sin. We have to have both of these. And when we deny one or the other, we lose that attribute as well. God's love doesn't mean anything if he wasn't angry at sin. God's justice means nothing if we don't also see his love. There's a reason why God has given to us the entirety of Scripture. And we need to look at the entirety of Scripture in order to be able to see who he is. We're talking in Sunday school this morning at how sometimes we divide the Scriptures into two. The Old Testament is where God was mean and the New Testament is where God was nice. That's not true. Well, looking at two different gods. In the Old Testament, God was willing to spare Sodom and Gomorrah for ten righteous people. And in the New Testament, God killed a couple for lying. In Revelation, he's coming back with a sword. We need the full picture of who God is. So let's not be distracted with visual things. We have enough what we see here in our word. And that this is what should drive us to the Savior. Again, I'm not prepared to say that you're sinning if you have a children's Bible. But as you do so, use this as an opportunity to explain to your children. Yes, Jesus is fully human. That's why we can see this here. But he's far more than that. That he is God himself who was broken for us in his body. That's why he had one. So that it could be broken. So that it could be a substitute for us. And when we're led into the actions of what Jesus has done, what he looks like really fades into the background as we focus on what it is that Jesus has done for us, which we will celebrate here in just a moment. Let's pray. Oh, Jesus, we thank you for this time that we have together. We thank you for the clarity about how we are to worship you, that you are far beyond anything that we could visualize or invent but that you are great God of the universe, that you stand above all. So I ask as we come to this supper that you would prepare us for the gospel made visible. We ask all these things in Jesus' name, amen.